Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Radio Westeros, episode 82, The Andals. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Radio Westeros. I'm one of your hosts, Lady Guinevere, and with me, as always, is Yoke Boy. Yeah, thank you guys so much for tuning in. Today we have a packed episode for you all about the Andals. Following our recent look at the First Men, we continue with our focus of the ethnic groups of Westeros to consider the second mass migration from Essos. And by the way, if you haven't heard the First Men episode... Don't worry, as this episode will stand alone fine. And so to start, we'll consider the origins of the Andals, all the way back thousands of years ago when they first settled in the Axe in northwestern Essos and founded their home region of Andalos. We'll consider the political situation at the time. First, the Andals had to oppose the Hairy Men, cousins of the Ibanese, then keep peace with their neighbors of the Roinar. That peace, though, was shattered when the Valyrians harnessed dragons in their meteoric rise to power. Next, we'll look at Andal culture. While the first men were scraping runes into rocks, the Andals were mastering reading and writing, so we'll consider what impact being lettered had and what advantages that gave them. We'll also talk about their religion, the faith of the seven, and explore why it's such a popular belief system amongst small folk and lords alike. What is it about the seven that makes it such a relatable faith? Then we'll take a detailed look at an era that changed Westerosi history forever, the Andal invasion. While the first men defended their territory with bronze weapons, the Andals were wielding iron, steel, and even Valyrian steel. This is one of the reasons why the Andals were able to conquer Westeros with inferior numbers, and will follow their invasion from their landing in the Vale and track their spread across the continent, region by region. We'll focus on all the battles, alliances, and marriages that allowed the Andals to get a foothold in Westeros and gradually dominate the continent. So there's a lot to talk about today, but let's first say thanks to all of our patrons who make episodes like this possible. So thank you so much patrons for keeping our ship sailing, including our Flaming Lightbringer patron TJ Harrington, our Dragonsteel patron Peter, and our Pale as Milk Glass patrons Alex, Acker the Company of the Cats, Chris B the Song of Ice, Seth, 
Kelly, Laura, Sister Winter, Multude, M.T. Wall's first of his name, and John Weirgarian, as well as B-Word and Mr. J, the Bear and the Maiden Fair, and Sir Tim of House Jib Jab Hot Dog Shop. House motto, we forge the chains we wear in life. And speaking of patrons, we are planning to add additional patron-exclusive episodes to our current offerings in the new year, so stay tuned for that and join us at patreon.com slash radioestros for as little as $3 per episode to gain access to all our patron-exclusive content. And now, it's time to dive in with the Andals. The Andals originated in the lands of the Axe, East and north of where Pentos now lies, though they were for many centuries a migratory people who did not remain in one place for long. From the heartlands of the Axe, a great spur of land surrounded on all sides by the shivering sea, they travelled south and west to carve out Andalos, an ancient realm the Andals ruled before they crossed the narrow sea. In the last installment of this series, we focused on the first men's migration from Essos to Westeros across the Arm of Dorne approximately 12,000 years before the beginning of the Song of Ice and Fire. But we shouldn't forget that there were other cultures developing all over Essos, and that history didn't begin when men arrived in Westeros. Yeah, this was during the Dawn Age, when Westeros was inhabited by giants and the children of the forest, and humans remained in the east. History this far back is written to be incredibly murky, and so the information we have on that era before the first men migrated is scant and vague at the best of times. Yet there are occasional tidbits offered in the text and auxiliary material that paint a picture of these ancient times. In the world book, Maester Yandel offers this about the Dawn Age. We can be certain that the world was far more primitive, a barbarous place of tribes living directly from the land with no knowledge of the working of metal or the taming of beasts. What little is known to us of those days is contained in the oldest of texts, the tales written down by the Andals, by the Valyrians and by the Giscari, and even by those distant people of fabled Ashai. Yet, however ancient those lettered races, they were not even children during the Dawn Age. So what truths their tales contain are difficult to find, like seeds among chaff. What can most accurately be told about the Dawn Age? The eastern lands were awash with many peoples, uncivilised, as all the world was uncivilised, but numerous. In the Grasslands section of the World Book, we learn of the belief held at the Citadel that, quote, it was here amidst these grasses that civilization was born during the Dawn Age. So, around the banks of the River Sarn and its many tributary streams, villages and towns began to pop up around what we now know as the Dothraki Sea. And while some maesters pinpoint this area as a first-men point of origin, there are others who hold that this was the birthplace of Andal culture as well. Yandel says, the Andals too may have risen in the fertile fields south of the Silver Sea. This is an interesting origin theory for both peoples, perhaps hinting that thousands or even tens of thousands of years before the Andals would join the first men in Westeros, the two ethnic groups might have mingled or crossed paths while inhabiting close territory in the grasslands. 
What would be notable here is that, if true, it would mean that the Andals, before their westward migration, had contact with all the main groups of modern Westeros, because, as we'll see today, the Rhoyna and the Valyrians were also on their radar. However, the World Book offers a second potential origin theory for the Andals, that they hailed from a rocky peninsula on the northern coast of Essos called the Axe, surrounded by the Shivering Sea. Yandel also explains that, quote, for many centuries the Andals were a migratory people who did not remain in one place for long. And so perhaps this detail allows us to merge two disparate origin theories. It could be that the Andals first grouped around the Sarn and the Silver Sea in protoform as one of many tribes, then traveled to the Axe, where they truly established themselves as a distinct and settled culture in the heartland of the Spur. Sometimes, when the World Book offers two opposing theories, the truth might be a little from column A and a little from column B. Whatever the case, the Andals eventually settled the axe. There they mastered ironworking, and given that, quote, the Roinar were already an advanced civilization then, and knew of ironworking too, added to the geographical location of the axe close to the river Darkwash, which eventually feeds the Rhoyne, and where the Rhoynar apparently maintained outposts, some maesters conclude that ironcraft was passed from the Rhoynar to the Andals. However, the Andals' ancient holy text, the Seven-Pointed Star, teaches that ironcraft was given from the Seven, and that the smith himself taught them this valuable art. While the Andal history of ironcraft might seem like a minute detail in the history of Planetos, it is in fact a crucial aspect of the world-building, because, as we'll see, the Andal's military might stemmed from their advanced expertise in working iron into weapons and armor, forging the blades and breastplates that would one day become integral to their invasion of Westeros. But given we're still millennia away from that invasion, and perhaps somewhere in the early Age of Heroes on the Westerosi timeline, we should note that the Andals didn't have to wait that long to bloody their iron blades. Yeah, when the Andals spread southwest from the Axe, expanding their borders over territory that would eventually become Andalos, they met resistance. Yandel explains that the Andals brought iron weapons with them and suits of iron plates against which the tribes that inhabited those lands could do little. And one example of such a tribe is noted, the Hairy Men, whose true name has been long forgotten, and who might be related to the modern Ebenese, who are described as, quote, the most hirsute people in the known world, which fits the notion of an ancient tribe of Hairy Men. If they are related, this lends credence to the possibility that the Andals bearing iron weapons drove the Hairy Men away to Ib, which demonstrates perfectly how there were a lot of factions in Essos in that time moving around the map, jostling for power, and in some cases forcing other peoples to resettle elsewhere, a theme that will become increasingly pertinent to the Andals further down the line. But for now, overcoming these lesser-equipped and technologically inferior tribes gave the Andals battle experience and no doubt encouraged them to further explore the military possibilities Iron offered. 
Long before the days of Valyria and their dragons, which changed everything for a time, they were learning that good metal was the key to conquering and gaining new territory. And the investment in this technology paid dividends, as soon the Andals came to dominate the inland area of northwestern Essos and established their own home territory of Andalos that they occupied for millennia. Looking at a map of Essos, Andalos was a huge area between Pentos, Norvos and Bravos, although keep in mind that the latter wasn't yet settled as a free city when the Andals arrived. In A Dance with Dragons, we see parts of Andalos through Tyrion Lannister's eyes, as Magister Illyrio Mopatis escorts them from Pentos towards the Rhoyne. The cheesemonger tells Tyrion, This is Andalos, my friend, the land your Andals came from. They took it from the hairy men who were here before them, cousins to the hairy men of Ib. The heart of Hugor's ancient realm lies north of us, but we are passing through its southern marches. In Pentos, these are called the Flatlands. Farther east stand the Velvet Hills, whence we are bound. And perhaps the Velvet Hills offered some natural protection from invaders because Yandel tells us that for a few centuries, as the Yandels prospered, they were left more or less to themselves. This isolation allowed their culture to flourish, and it's said that the faith of the seven was born in those hills. Tyrion thinks, The faith taught that the seven themselves had once walked the hills of Andalos in human form. The father reached his hand into the heavens and pulled down seven stars, and one by one he set them on the brow of Hugor of the Hill to make a glowing crown. So now the Andals not only had a secure and expansive homeland that was ready to support a growing population, but they had their own religion too, binding them together as a people, enriching their sense of identity and purpose. We'll cover the faith of the seven in detail later on, but for now consider that their gods, the seven themselves, were apparently mingling with the populace, offering direction, teaching skills, and even choosing a leader. Yeah, Hugor of the Hill, as we heard, apparently crowned by the father himself, features prominently in the oldest holy script of the faith of the seven, the seven-pointed star, and is known to history as the first Andal king. What Hugo's truth is, we'll never know, as we can firmly file his status in the realm of truly legendary figures such as Garth Greenhands and Brandon the Builder. From Pentashi legend, we hear that the Andals, quote, slew the swan maidens who lured travelers to their deaths in the velvet hills that lie to the east of the free city. A hero whom the Pentashi singers call Huko led the Andals at that time, and it is said that he slew the seven maids not for their crimes, but instead as a sacrifice to his gods. There are some maesters who've noted that Huko may well be a rendering of the name Hugor. And in the Veil section of the world book, Yandel informs us that House Arryn derives from the oldest and purest line of Andal nobility. The Arryn kings can proudly trace their lineage to Andalos itself, and some of them have gone so far as to claim descent from Hugor of the Hill. And so, with pertinent legends not just from Andalos, but from the surrounding area too, and with modern houses proudly claiming descent from Hugor, we can see that comparisons with Garth and Brandon are wholly appropriate. 
Yet Hugor might not be the only legendary Andal figure. Tyrion Lannister was an apt character for George to lead through the marches of Andalos because his ancient legendary forebear, Lan the Clever, might have been an Andal explorer. During the Age of Heroes, Lan apparently winkled Casterly Rock away from the Casterlies, who were first men, using only his wits, a maneuver which saw the Casterlies strangely disappear from the lineages to be replaced by Lannisters. And Lan's background is intriguing. The World Book says, That was when the golden-haired rogue called Lan the Clever appeared from out of the east. Some say he was an Andal adventurer from across the narrow sea, though this was millennia before the coming of the Andals to Westeros. So it's interesting to think that while the Andals were beginning to thrive in isolated Andalos, there might have been explorers among them who were travelling to Westeros, getting the lay of the land and potentially mapping out territory. Any knowledge gained would one day become invaluable when the Andals turned the collective gaze west. For now, though, they seem to have been content to reside in Andalos, unopposed as the centuries rolled by. Further to the east, centered around the region we now call Slaver's Bay, the slave-driving Giscari Empire was flourishing, which would have been greatly concerning for anyone residing in Essos. However, the long distance between Andalos and Old Geese offered a logistical barrier, and lying between them stretched the Broinar civilization, which had also grown strong. The position of the Roinar, coupled with the relative peacefulness of these neighbors, are factors as to why the Andals were able to exist for so long unthreatened. However, further along the timeline, during the Westerosi Age of Heroes, all that was about to change. Following the onslaught of the others known as the Long Night in Westeros, which may have also affected Andalos, given the reports from the Roynish ruined city of Croyan that, quote, A darkness made the Roin dwindle and disappear, her waters frozen as far south as the joining of the Siloru. The seeds of another, closer threat were being sown to the east of Andalos. Yeah, somewhere within a large southern peninsula where a string of volcanoes known as the Fourteen Flames sat above the summer sea, a tribe of harmless shepherds had discovered, or perhaps engineered, dragons and learned to tame and ride them. If you want an in-depth look to what was happening there, see our episode 73, All About Dragons, where we go into detail about their origins. Anyway, to condense the story here, we'll mention that these shepherds were proto-Valyrians, and with the formidable power they gained through the mastery of dragons, they were able to establish themselves across that peninsula that they named Valyria. The Valyrian rise to power was exponential, and soon their dragon culture became a force to be reckoned with in Essos, even threatening the well-established Giscari Empire. As it turns out, being the only culture with weaponized dragon flame in your arsenal gives you an incredible advantage over your rivals. But just as the Giscari sought to learn the secrets of dragons in order to balance the power, the quest for cultural and leadership knowledge went both ways. Although newcomers to the Empire business, the Valyrians founded their freehold, began conquering, and learned a neat trick from the Giscari along the way. 
Yeah, the Giscari Empire had always understood the advantages of free labor and had mastered slavery much as the Valyrians had mastered dragons, including the training of armies of lockstep slave soldiers that would one day inspire the mutilated unsullied of Slaver's Bay. Not about to take any sort of moral high ground, the Valyrians learned every slaver's trick in the book from their rivals, and soon set captives from their conquests toiling in the deep mines beneath Valyria in hellish conditions. Fortunately for the Andals, for a time, many centuries in fact, the aforementioned position of the Rhoyne River and its large settlements provided a convenient strategic barrier against the reach of the Valerians. The Andals agreed to a peace with the Rhoynar, who had grown to be a powerful union of city-states. During this period, the Valerians were preoccupied with a protracted series of wars with the Giscari, and after five brutal rounds, the empire of Old Gis was destroyed by Dragonflame and its soil sown with salt to ensure the bloody business was concluded for good, which ironically set up some of the difficulties of Daenerys Targaryen's reign in Slaver's Bay thousands of years later. With the distraction of Old Gis eliminated, the Valyrian freehold sought to expand its reach and collect more slaves to keep the wheels of industry turning. And the bad news began for the Andals when the Valyrians founded a colony at the mouth of the Rhoyne. Yandel says, There Volantis was raised by some of the wealthiest men of the freehold in order to gather up the wealth that flowed down the Rhoyne, and from Volantis their conquering forces crossed the river in great strength. And so Volantis was strategically placed to exploit the riches of the river, but also allowed easy access into western Essos without disturbing the cities of the Rhoynar. From then on, the Andal's days of living in peaceful seclusion were numbered. At that point, mirroring the early kingdoms of the First Men, Andalos was divided into a series of petty kingdoms, which meant numerous kings all vying for territory. Perhaps unsurprisingly, the boundaries of Andalos were pushed further back until, to the north, the islands forming Lorath were conquered. Yandel says, Clad in mail and wielding iron swords and axes, the Andals swept across the islands, slaughtering the hairy men in the name of their seven-faced god and taking their women and children as slaves. Again, the territory was divided between numerous petty kings in a continuous cycle of war. That was until an ambitious Andal leader known as Carlin the Great rose up to unite Lorath under his rule, displaying the heads of his vanquished foes in his halls. But Carlon's ambitions didn't end in Lorath. The World Book says it was Carlon's dream to make himself king of all Andals, and to that end he went forth time and time again against the petty kings of Andalos. After twenty years and as many wars, the writ of Carlon the Great extended from the lagoon where Bravos would one day rise all the way east to the Axe, and as far south as the headwaters of the Upper Rhoyne and Noyne. But still, Carlon's thirst for power wasn't sated, and he made the fateful decision to march on the free city of Norvos, which the Valyrian freehold considered a distant daughter. Carlon, leading the attacks himself, initially won two battles in the hills around Norvos. But when he marched on the city itself, the Norvashi alerted Valyria. 
while great distances and the width of the Rhoyne might have led Carlon to believe he was safe from Valeria's reach, the dragon lords were so offended by his aggression that they mounted their dragons. In fact, the Valerians decided to display their full power, and according to the tome Fires in the Freehold, rode a hundred dragons up the Rhoyne to the besieged city. As you might expect, Carlon burned with his army. But unsatisfied with the fiery demise of their foe, no doubt melted inside his iron armour, the dragon riders headed north and bathed the islands in dragon flame, killing all the inhabitants in a massacre known to history as the Scouring of Larath. The Valyrians had tasted Andal blood, and while still maintaining a peace with the Rhoynar, Andalos became their next target. Using Volantis as a base, the Valyrians swept over Andalos. Yandel says, The Andals might have fought against them at first, and the Rhoynar might even have aided them, but the tide was unstoppable, so it is likely the Andals chose to flee rather than face the inevitable slavery that came with Valyrian conquest. They retreated to the Axe, the lands from which they had sprung, and when that did not protect them, they retreated farther north and west until they came to the sea. And when they found their backs against the sea, with the islands of Lorath to the north a smoldering ruin, the Andals were truly at a crossroad. They had significant numbers that they needed to feed and an ancient culture to uphold and protect. If they had stayed in Essos... They would not only have lost their freedom, but their gods and their civilization, too. Is it any wonder, then, that while some Andals remained to face the inevitable, quote, many and more made ships and sailed in great numbers across the narrow sea to the lands of the first men in Westeros? Yeah, whereas the first men, perhaps due to having been landlocked in the grasslands of Essos, were noted not to be seafarers, the Andals, having lived for so long along the northern coast with access to coastlines for millennia, were adept sailors. With the Arm of Dawn having been shattered thousands of years prior, the sea provided the only path into Westeros, and so the Andal refugees boarded their ships and set sail for western shores. As Yandel puts it, those who would not be slaves but were unable to withstand the might of Valyria fled. Many failed and are forgotten. But one people, tall and fair-haired, made courageous and indomitable by their faith, succeeded in their escape from Valyria. And those men are the Andals. However, the threat of subjugation wasn't the only factor at play here. The Septas and Septons of the Faith teach that Hugo of the Hill was visited by the Seven and promised great kingdoms in a foreign land. In the Vale section of the World Book, we get more details about that promise, as, quote, The sacred book of the faith, the seven-pointed star, speaks of a golden land amidst towering mountains when Hugo of the Hill received his vision of the bounty that would one day belong to the Andals. And so, hounded out of Essos by the aggression of the Valyrians, but guided by prophecy, the Andals began to leave their homeland after thousands of years, sailing west across the narrow sea, arriving initially at the fingers in the Vale to seek their destiny. 
this would be the second mass human migration from Essos into Westeros, but it won't be the last, as we'll see in the course of this series. But before we cover that, up next, we'll take a deep dive into Andor culture as we seek to understand their religion and the technological superiorities that drove their invasion of the promised Golden Land across the Narrow Sea. For thousands of years, the Andals abided in Andalos, growing in number. In the oldest of the holy books, the Seven-Pointed Star, it is said that the Seven themselves walked among their people in the hills of Andalos. And it was they who crowned Hugo of the Hill and promised him and his descendants great kingdoms in a foreign land. Before we cover the epic Andal invasion with its bloody battles, shrewd alliances and strategic marriages that would forever shape Westeros, let's first take a closer look at who they were and what their culture was all about, from their appearance to their language to their religion. Having already discussed their motives for heading west, understanding their culture will give us a clearer context for the decisions they made when they landed on Westerosi shores, and ultimately allow us a deeper understanding of the legacy of that monumental manoeuvre. And to begin, let's consider what the Andals typically looked like. Given that George is endeavoring to create a world filled with disparate people and customs, his first order of business, from a design perspective, was to make the Andals physically distinct from the first men already inhabiting Westeros. As a reference for the typical first man look, we get early descriptions of Lord Eddard Stark, who embodies the North and its first men roots, and then an intriguing glimpse at the historical Starks commemorated in stone down in the crypts of Winterfell. We learn quickly that the Stark look typically consists of long, stern faces, hard, gray eyes, and brown hair. Maester Lewin provided the contrasting Andal exposition to Bran early in A Game of Thrones when he said, There came a time many centuries after the pact when other peoples crossed the Narrow Sea. The Andals were the first, a race of tall, fair-haired warriors. Later, the Roynar would land in Westeros, described as slim with, quote, olive skin and dark hair, and later still, a small contingent of Valyrians would flee westwards with their purple eyes and silver-gold hair. George also detailed other cultural factors to set the Andals further aside from the First Men. Whereas the First Men spoke the harsh-sounding Old Tongue, the Andals communicated in their common tongue, which would one day dominate Westeros, save the odd giant and free folk tribe north of the Wall. The common tongue would supplant the Old Tongue, just as the Old Tongue had once supplanted the True Tongue as the dominant language in Westeros, and so language itself became a metaphor for who was the Ascendant Force. And related to language, we should also consider the key factor of writing. In our first man episode, we covered their runic tradition in detail, how they carved runes into stones and rocks, and even wood. Without runes, much of what we know about the ancient history would have been lost to time. For example, we might not know that there was once an arm of dawn, if not for the thousands of runic inscriptions the first men made about their crossing into Westeros. However, there's an obvious shortfall to the runic system. 
Over time, rocks become weathered and wood or trees die, rot, or otherwise disintegrate, and what little remains after thousands of years becomes incomprehensible to scholars. On the subject of Riverland's antiquity, for example, Yandel writes that their histories are entwined and embroidered with myth and song, largely forgotten save for the names of a few legendary kings and heroes whose deeds are recorded on weathered stones in runes whose meanings are even now disputed at the citadel. And so Yandel continues, the true history of the Riverlands begins with the coming of the Andals, meaning that anything before this point was not recorded convincingly, leaving the events of prior eras in Westeros largely open to interpretation. As keen long-night researcher Samuel Tarley puts it to the Night's Watch Lord Commander Jon Snow after a reading session in the Castle Black Library, the oldest histories we have were written after the Andals came to Westeros, The first men only left us runes and rocks, so everything we think we know about the Age of Heroes and the Dawn Age and the Long Night comes from the accounts set down by Septons thousands of years later. There are archmaesters at the Citadel who question all of it. So it seems that when the Andals started to spread across Westeros, they brought with them a written language, and their septons, maesters, and other intellectuals began the arduous task of translating ancient runes, legends, and folklore into the common tongue and recording them, markedly improving the standards of documenting history. By that point, they had already greatly benefited from their superior mode of communication for millennia. We'll talk of the Andals and their ironwork giving them the fullest military advantages over the First Men, a factor which may have turned the tide of history. But what about the fact that they had evidently mastered reading and writing to a higher standard, meaning they could send letters, record the events of their day, document battles down to the finest detail, draw up intricate schematics for ships and other vehicles, and keep all of this information bound up in books, transmitting invaluable knowledge from one mind and one generation to the next. Yeah, it's difficult to overstate how much a system of advanced writing would have enriched the Andal culture for perhaps thousands of years before the invasion, encouraging education, improved logistics, and enhancing communication. And these advantages would have come to the fore when they came to coordinate a mass invasion against a people more numerous and with the luxury of a home advantage. Ironically, as we'll see, the Andals brought one method of recording events and histories with them, yet destroyed another when they began to fell every weirwood tree in sight. But that's getting ahead of ourselves. One of the most significant effects of the Andals' writing tradition was the fact that they could document their religion in holy texts. In contrast, the First Men's original religion remains lost to history, And we see in Bran Stark's story that green-seeing, a cornerstone of the old god's religion that the first men acquired from those they called the children of the forest, is essentially a lost art, with only a handful of characters and the remaining children privy to this incredible knowledge. Whereas religious writings have survived for millennia in Andal culture, since the days of Andalos, there appears to be no holy text for worshippers of the old gods. And so let's take a closer look at the Andal's sacred book, The Seven-Pointed Star, and consider the faith of the Seven as a whole, 
both of which set the Andals far apart from those who came before them. Catelyn had been anointed with the seven oils and named in the rainbow of light that filled the sept of River Run. She was of the faith, like her father and grandfather and his father before him. Her gods had names, and their faces were as familiar as the faces of her parents. Worship was a septon with a censer, the smell of incense, a seven-sided crystal alive with light, voices raised in song. The Tullys kept a godswood, as all the great houses did, but it was only a place to walk or read or lie in the sun. Worship was for the sept. Whereas animism influenced George's depiction of the old gods, and there's a distinct Zoroastrian influence on the religion of R'hllor, George was taking a leaf out of medieval Catholicism in the faith of the seven. One of the central tenets of Catholicism is that a single god is represented in three aspects called the Trinity, the Father, the Son and the Holy Ghost. Similarly, the seven are one God divided into seven aspects, the father, mother, maiden, crone, warrior, smith, and stranger. During the Middle Ages, the Catholic Church became so powerful that the Pope had a major influence over European politics and monarchy. George has attempted to echo this history with the faith, whose influence over the monarchs of Westeros culminates with their leader, the High Septon, wielding increasing power throughout the main series, including dictating a devastating and humiliating punishment to Queen Cersei Lannister in A Dance with Dragons. And while the old gods conjure the magic of nature and R'hllor incorporates the magic of fire, the faith is a more grounded belief system with no magic as such, but an emphasis on the power of prayer to the seven aspects of God who each offer a different inspiration. The father represents sound judgment and the mother is linked to compassion and protection. Given the ubiquity of mothers and fathers in any given society, we can understand that the Seven is a religion which offers a degree of relatability and also aspiration for the masses. And then there's the warrior, who one could turn to for courage, especially appealing to soldiers about to risk their lives before battle. The smith with his hammer represents industry, creation, and hard work, adored by craftsmen and sailors alike. The maiden represents female innocence, appealing to girls and women seeking courage and protection in a man's world. And the crone is the font of maturity, offering wisdom to those seeking guidance. Finally, there's the mysterious stranger, the faceless death aspect, the psychopomp that leads the dead across the threshold into the afterlife. And so overall, we can see the advantages of a god comprised of seven disparate aspects. Whoever you are, and whatever your problem, there's a face of god you can turn to in your hour of need. Not only are these aspects relatable, but they offer diversity to worshippers, from young maids to seasoned soldiers, from paupers to kings and queens. In A Clash of Kings, when Stannis Baratheon's fleet is bearing down on King's Landing, through Sansa Stark's POV, we get a glimpse of how much the Seven means to the locals and Sansa herself when she visits a sept to pray. Here's the passage. Through the quiet, the singing pulled at her. 
Sansa turned toward the sept. Two stable boys followed and one of the guards whose watch had ended. Others fell in behind them. Sansa had never seen the sept so crowded, nor so brightly lit. Great shafts of rainbow-colored sunlight slanted down through the crystals in the high windows, and candles burned on every side, their little flames twinkling like stars. The mother's altar and the warriors swam in light, but smith and crone and maid and father had their worshippers as well, and there were even a few flames dancing below the stranger's half-human face. For what was Stannis Baratheon, if not the stranger come to judge them. Sansa visited each of the seven in turn, lighting a candle at each altar, and then found herself a place on the benches between a wizened old washerwoman and a boy no older than Rickon, dressed in the fine linen tunic of a knight's son. The old woman's hand was bony and hard with callus, the boy's small and soft, but it was good to have someone to hold on to. The air was hot and heavy, smelling of incense and sweat, crystal-kissed and candle-bright. It made her dizzy to breathe it. She knew the hymn. Her mother had taught it to her once, a long time ago in Winterfell. She joined her voice to theirs. Gentle mother, font of mercy, save our sons from war, we pray. Stay the swords and stay the arrows. Let them know a better day. Gentle mother, strength of women, help our daughters through this fray. Soothe the wrath and tame the fury. Teach us all a kinder way. Across the city, thousands had jammed into the great sept of Baylor on Visenya's hill, and they would be singing too, their voices swelling out over the city, across the river, and up into the sky. Surely the gods must hear us. Seeing how much strength the Seven offers its worshippers, both to individuals and the collective group, in their time of need during this pre-battle scene goes a long way to explaining its popularity. We can understand the broad appeal of the faith and see why it originally bound the people of Andalos together and then became such a significant and enduring part of their culture. And as we said, this religion was greatly facilitated by the advanced writing system of the Andals, which allowed its devout, called Septas and Septons, to spread the word of the holy texts, their meanings and their histories, even to the unlettered among the populace. And of course, the primary holy text is the seven-pointed star, in which the founding of the faith is documented. Tyrion recalls this line, learned by rote as a child. The father reached his hand into the heavens and pulled down seven stars, and one by one he set them on the brow of Hugor of the Hill to make a glowing crown. Later in the same chapter, Tyrion thinks, The maid brought Hugor forth a girl as supple as a willow with eyes like deep blue pools, and Hugor declared that he would have her for his bride, so the mother made her fertile, and the crone foretold that she would bear the king four and forty mighty sons. The warrior gave strength to their arms, whilst the smith wrought for each a suit of iron plates. These snippets of the holy text give us insight into the cornerstone of the faith's beliefs, the point where God touched man and empowered a king, then aided him in different ways, ultimately giving a common cultural and religious identity to all those Andalusians seeking purpose and a higher power. 
when Tyrion Lannister, who funnily enough goes on to adopt the pseudonym Hugo Hill, recites this passage in the modern timeline, he might be speaking words 10,000 years old that have been read and interpreted by countless generations. Who among these early settlers in Andalos could have ever imagined that the faith would one day become the dominant religion of Westeros? In the main series, we see the Seven's influence stamped all over the culture of southern Westeros, from beautiful songs and prayers, elaborate houses of worship known as septs, sacred holy days, and the plethora of customs and rites, such as feasts and vows at weddings, to the quiet work of the Silent Sisters offering dignity to the dead. However, the Seven's dominant influence failed to take root in the North, where the old gods have proven difficult to supplant. Whereas the Neck offers a neat geographical dividing line to set the North apart and explain why the Andals never made physical inroads above the Riverlands, the Old Gods versus the Seven offers a cultural dividing line that highlights the loose boundary between First Men and Andals. Similarly, the Ironborn are set apart not just because of the dividing sea, but because of their devotion to the Drowned God rather than the Seven. All of this serves to present Westeros as a complex melting pot rather than a monoculture, not only for world-building purposes, but also to provide groundwork for important plot points and character work, such as Rob Stark's crowning harking back to First Men traditions related to the North's former independence. And another cultural aspect ingrained into Westerosi society that originated with the Andals and their faith is the institution of knighthood. Throughout the story, we follow knights such as Jamie Lannister and Barristan Selmy, and non-knights like Sandor Clegane and Brienne of Tarth, as their arcs explore themes of knighthood, ultimately raising critical questions about the nature of vows and honour. We shouldn't forget, then, that knighthood came to Westerosi shores with the Andals, and therefore would have been a prevalent tradition in Andalos many years before. When accepting a knighthood, seven oils are used in the anointing, as they are when anointing a king, which demonstrates the inextricable links between knighthood and the seven. And so, while the faith of the seven offers religious comfort to the common man, knighthood offers further cultural distinction. Knights swear sacred vows and are supposed to prioritize defending the weak, which is an ideal meant to improve society in spite of how much that purpose gets corrupted. The original role of knights was to protect vulnerable people and encourage those with strength to deploy it wisely and fairly, fostering a society built upon morality. All of these ideas came out of Andalos and in its purest form, ironically best displayed by non-knight Brienne of Tarth in the current timeline, the Institute of Knighthood instills Westerosi society with courage and honor. And one place we see overt themes of knighthood, honor, and the seven intersect is in the Duncan Egg debut story, The Hedge Knight. In the story, Duncan the Tall talks about his mentor, Sir Arlen, instructing him on what it means to be a knight, to obey the seven gods, defend the weak and innocent, serve my lord faithfully, and defend the realm with all my might. Later, having attacked Prince Arion Targaryen for his assault of the female puppeteer Tanzel Tutal, arguably one of the weak and innocent a knight is charged to protect, Dunk finds himself in hot water 
possibly facing execution. However, Prince Baylor Breakspear Targaryen intervenes and suggests a trial by combat, the right of any knight accused of a crime to defend his honor with his body in the sight of gods and men. It's Prince Arion who insists on a trial of seven to decide Dunk's fate. Given that such a trial has not been employed for many years, Dunk is confused about the tradition and we get this exposition from Prince Baylor. It is another form of trial by combat, ancient, seldom invoked. It came across the narrow sea with the Andals and their seven gods. In any trial by combat, the accuser and accused are asking the gods to decide the issue between them. The Andals believed that if seven champions fought on each side, the gods, being thus honoured, would be more like to take a hand and see that a just result was achieved. Adding together all of these religious and cultural factors, we can understand how central the concept of the seven is to Andal culture. So perhaps it's no surprise that when they found themselves persecuted by the Valyrians, forced out of their homeland under the threat of mass enslavements, many of the Andals became religious fanatics. The World Book says... The Valyrians had denied the Andals the promise of the Seven in Essos, but in Westeros they were free. Made zealous by the conflict and flight, the warriors of the Andals carved the seven-pointed star upon their bodies and swore by their blood and the Seven not to rest until they had hewn their kingdoms from the sunset lands. The success gave Westeros a new name, Raish Andali, the land of the Andals, as the Dothraki now name it. And so, radicalised by Valyrian oppression, with the promise of bountiful new lands written in their holy text from the mouth of God, the Andals set sail towards Westeros to resettle on foreign soil. Leaving little behind, they took with them their religion, which bound them together and gave them strength in the most uncertain of times. Their writing, which carried their histories and faith and gave them an advantage over the runic first men, and their technology, their iron and steel weapons and armour that would prove decisive during their invasion. And as the Andal ships coursed across the narrow sea towards the Vale, not all at once as Nymeria's 10,000 ships would come years later, but in waves, Westeros was about to experience a seismic shift during this second mass migration in its history. Coming up next, we'll explore how the Andals were able to make those initial inroads into Westeros that would one day lead to them overcoming the First Men, slaughtering the children of the forest, and ultimately dominating much of the continent. But first, at the midpoint of the episode, it's time to give thanks to our patrons from the Valyrian Steel level. Thanks so much to Aileen, Akiva of House Hunt, Oxheart, Blyde Spirit, Archmaester Kobe of the Higher Mysteries, Cabot the Unfrozen, David Dean, James K, Lord Sosa and his faithful canine companion Theoden, Jill, JM, Herbert Westeros, the Miskatonic Maester, Casey, Lady Silverwing, Infendaris, the Unspeakable Terror, Maester Paul Capuano, Mark, Boss, Schwartz the Black, The Sothorian, Sally, Samantha, Tristis Lurian, Wild Child of the Wolfswood, Tim Magnar of Hustan, W Sword of the Evening, and Lady Dyerlis of Castlenaki, the Alpha Patron. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. 
But getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Isolated from the rest of Westeros by its towering mountains, the Vale proved the perfect ground for the Andals to carve out their first kingdoms in this new land. The first men who were there before the Andals fought these seaborne conquerors stubbornly, but the Vale was but thinly peopled in those days, and they soon found themselves outnumbered in every fight. No sooner was one longship set aflame or driven back into the sea, the singers say, than ten more rose from the dawn. No one can say for sure why the Andals chose to land their ships on the shores of the Vale, but it seems likely that there were a wide variety of factors as opposed to one single reason. First off, there's the line from the seven-pointed star we mentioned earlier. Hugor of the Hill had apparently been shown a glimpse of the future by the seven, receiving a vision of, quote, a golden land amidst towering mountains that the Andals would one day call home. We all know the power of prophecy in this world, and bearing in mind that the Andals might have been puzzling over this vision for thousands of years in Andalos, they must surely have felt a grand sense of destiny as the wind blew their sails westward. And given the overt hint that Lan the Clever had been an Andal explorer, we find it likely that there had been other similar expeditions out of Andalos and that the Andals would have known something about the lay of the land in Westeros, collected detailed maps and figured out the optimal places to land. The prophecy speaks of towering mountains and so it seems highly possible that the Andals matched the veil to that description. And if they needed any more encouragement, landing in the Vale offered other natural advantages. First, there's the basic geography of Westeros. Given that the Andals had retreated to the Axe and eventually set sail from that peninsula, their natural course west would have been along the northern coastline of Essos, sailing past what's now known as Bravos. They would no doubt have been hoping for the quickest and safest route across the narrow sea, and looking at the map, the fingers of the Vale are the closest points due west of the northwestern corner of the eastern continent. So destiny and convenience are two strong factors in choosing their landing spot, but there is also a third reason posited by Maester Yandel. The towering mountains of the Vale may have served another important purpose for the invaders. As we heard in the opening quote, those mountains isolated the Vale from the rest of Westeros, slowing down reinforcements and lines of communication, therefore making the area vulnerable to an attack by sea to the east. With the sparsely populated fingers offering long stretches of coastline with excellent harbours, there was plenty of space for the Andals to disembark, organise themselves and begin their bloody conquest. 
And at this juncture, we should revisit the discussion on Andal technology. We've heard how they might have gained an understanding of ironworking, originally from the Roinar, and then utilized and mastered that craft to defeat local tribes. Yet that all happened millennia prior to the invasion, and somewhere in between, the Andals made another significant advancement. Yeah, Maester Lewin informs Bran Stark in A Game of Thrones that the Andals came with steel and fire and the seven-pointed star of the new gods painted on their chests. The key detail here is that we're talking of steel and not simply iron. While bronze weapons would have been more plentiful than their iron counterparts among the First Men, references to iron in the Long Night indicate that some First Men may have actually had early iron technology – We know from our own world that the development from Bronze Age to Iron Age isn't an all-or-nothing situation. There's no single dividing line on the calendar, as many factors such as location and access to materials also came into play. However, in the veil, due to the sheer number of references to bronze, we can assume that the earlier metalworking technologies still dominated, perhaps due to its relative isolation and lack of contact with regions where iron could be found. And in the case of the Andals, smelting their iron into steel, the technological difference becomes critical. At some point in their history, Andal smiths must have discovered that the addition of carbon to iron forms the improved alloy we call steel. Whereas bronze weaponry had to be cast, and though hard, could be quite brittle, steel weapons were forged, their composition making them altogether stronger, sharper, and more resilient. In short, with steel blades in their hands, the Andals held a huge advantage. And it's an advantage they would need, for as Yandel puts it, despite everything, the first men were far more numerous than the Andals, and could not simply be forced aside. So, while the Andals had the steel, the first men had the numbers and home advantage. Even with sharper swords and iron ringmail that the first men couldn't match, it was never going to be easy to tear through the first men's lands they'd held for millennia. To consider the timeline for a moment, there are wildly varying accounts of how long before the current story the Andal invasion took place. We think it's safe to say we're talking after the Long Night era, but beyond that, the timeline gets predictably foggy. When Catelyn Stark arrives in the Vale, she contemplates the legend of Alyssa Arryn, who apparently died 6,000 years ago. Given that House Arryn is an Andal house, if that legend is accurate, that would mean the invasion occurred more than 6,000 years prior. However, in A Dance with Dragons, Hoster Blackwood informs Jamie Lannister that no one knows when the Andals crossed the Narrow Sea. The true history says 4,000 years have passed since then, but some maesters claim that it was only two. Past a certain point, all the dates grow hazy and confused, and the clarity of history becomes the fog of legend. And so we have a possible time range varying between 2,000 to 6,000 years ago. And we want to consider something we talked about in our episode on the First Men to give us another clue as to why the Andals were ultimately successful. Before the time of seven or eight sprawling kingdoms, Westeros was divided into numerous petty fiefdoms that were forever at war with each other. These deep-rooted rivalries slowed the response to the invasion considerably, enabling the Andals to gain a foothold and steady themselves. In fact, 
Sensing the disunity and attempting to turn it to their gain, the Andals took full advantage of these conflicts. Yandel says, Riven by ancient enmities, the kings of the first men did not unite against the invaders when they first appeared, but rather made pacts and alliances with them, seeking to use the newcomers in their wars against one another, a familiar folly that was to be repeated time and time again as the Andals spread out across Westeros. With the theme of Westeros failing to unite against a common foe, doesn't this remind us of the current story where the threat of the others from the hinterlands of the North is ignored by those in power whose focus is squarely on their immediate gains and quarrels? And so, with tricks up their sleeve and willing to play the First Men against each other, the Andals continue to arrive in the Vale. The World Book describes the First Men fighting stubbornly, yet losing battles on account of the thin population of defenders in the Vale. It says, No sooner was one longship set aflame or driven back into the sea, the singers say, than ten more rose from the dawn. And from there, it wasn't long before the aforementioned pacts and allegiances the first men made with the Andals in order to hurt their rivals began to backfire. Maester Yandel describes how the fingers eventually fell to the Andals. Dywin Shell and John Brightstone, both of whom claimed the title King of the Fingers, went so far as to pay Andal warlords to cross the sea, each thinking to use their swords against the other. Instead, the warlords turned upon their hosts. Within a year, Brightstone had been taken, tortured, and beheaded, and Shell roasted alive inside his wooden longhall. An Andal knight named Corwin Corbray took the daughter of the former for his bride and the wife of the latter for his bedwarmer and claimed the fingers for his own. With the fingers under their sway, the Andals had solidified their foothold, establishing a safe territory for more warriors and refugees to disembark and join the cause. Soon, more alliances were being forged between the First Men and Andals, with predictably similar results to the case of Dywin Shell and John Brightstone. Old Osgood Shett, ruler of the prosperous harbour town at Gulltown, sought revenge on his local rivals, the Royces, who had recently defeated Shett forces and caused a retreat behind Gulltown's walls. Like Shell and Brightstone, Shett looked to Andal warlords for assistance, but instead of offering gold, he offered something even more precious. Yandel explains that he gave his daughter in marriage to the Andal knight, Gerald Grafton, took Sir Gerald's eldest daughter for his own bride, and married a younger daughter to his son and heir. And if this wasn't enough, Osgood went as far as to convert to the faith of the Seven to please his Andal ally, with all the marriages being conducted by septons in accordance with the faith. The final recounted detail, that Osgood swore to build a grand sept in Gulltown upon deliverance of victory over the Royces, highlights just how desperate the first men were to get one over on each other. The Andals could almost have stepped back and watched one petty king destroy the next, and how marvelous it must have been to invade such a fractured land that the foe was offering gold and daughters at the drop of a hat. The first men were treating the invaders like sellswords. And ultimately, of course, Osgood misjudged who the real enemy was in the equation. Rumour has it that Sir Gerald himself murdered him on the battlefield before leading the Gulltown Andal Alliance to victory, thus relieving Shet of his title, King of the True Men, 
from first men grasp after a storied history dating back thousands of years to the Dawn Age. Sir Gerald then took the crown for himself, locked up Osgood's firstborn son and got himself a son with Osgood's daughter. The Andals had played the first men for fools and used any treacherous means necessary to seize power and exert control. And when the Galtown Hoi Poloi rebelled against their new foreign king and his seven-sided god, he showed not a drop of mercy in putting down the uprising. Yandel says, soon the gutters of the town ran red with the blood of the first men, and women and children as well. The dead were thrown in the bay to feed the crabs. With the cases of Shell, Brightstone and Shet serving as cautionary tales, there were other less credulous factions of first men who were eager to fend off the invaders rather than find common cause. We mentioned that Osgood Shet was mortal enemies with the Royces, who were then led by Yorick VI of Runestone, styled as the Bronze King. And remember that the proud first men Royces still wear bronze rune-inscripted armour to this day. Well, here we get a glimpse of where some of that ancient pride comes from, for in spite of losing the battle at Gulltown to the Shet Andal Alliance, Yorick Royce is noted to have won several victories against the invaders, quote, at one point smashing seven longships that had dared to land upon his shores and decorating the walls of Runestone with the heads of their captains and crews. After him... Yorick's heirs, the next Bronze Kings, continued the resistance that now stretched over generations. By then, however, the First Men found themselves on the back foot, as by the time of Yorick's grandson, Robar Royce II, they had ceded around three-quarters of the Vale to the Andals. But Robar gave his people a flicker of hope that the war could be turned by employing the same tactics the Andals had used. He began playing the invaders against each other. Yet, as we heard earlier, much like First Men Westeros, Andalos was also a place of petty kings and deep-rooted rivalries. According to Yandel, Robar warred with one enemy at a time, often making common cause with one Andal chief to bring down another. Meanwhile, much like Mance Raider in the current story with the Free Folk, Robar seized the opportunity to unite the tribes, so to speak. As a renowned warrior of both cunning and charm, Robar ticked the boxes of charismatic leadership and aimed to bring together the resilient but damaged Vale factions under one united banner in contrast to the now divided and competing Andals. He arranged political marriages, forged crafty alliances and drew in Vale houses and clans great and small behind him. All of these petty kings for once put aside their rivalries, renouncing their crowns and bending the knee to the visionary Robar, bestowing him with the grand title High King of the Vale, the Fingers and the Mountains of the Moon. Finally, the first men of the Vale were organised enough to attempt to stem the tide of Andal invaders and took their best shot at reclaiming their lands and protecting their culture. United by a single leader, perhaps for the first time in Vale history, the First Men became a force to be reckoned with, winning what Yandel describes as a series of smashing victories against their fractured foe. 
With the fate of the veil in the balance, King Robar Royce led by example, first slaying King of the Fingers Kyle Corbray and picking up Corbray's Valyrian steel blade, Lady Forlorn, in the process. Within the context of our discussion on bronze and iron and steel in this episode, this detail is intriguing because it tells us that at least some Andals had in fact been trading with the Valyrians, who had evidently taken steelmaking to the next level by this time, producing quasi-magical blades that were stronger, lighter, and sharper even than conventional steel. So quite a prize for King Robar to go from a bronze blade to Valyrian steel in one fell swoop was a significant upgrade that can only have further elevated his legendary aura among his troops. Next, Robar turned to Goldtown, where the Graftons had ruled since Sir Gerald's aforementioned betrayal of King Osgood Shet. Legend has it that Robar sent his own sister into the city, sparking an uprising that saw the first men Shets rebel against the Andal Graftons and open the city gates from within. Whereas a long siege might have drained Robar's resources and patience, his cunning thinking here saved a lot of time and bloodshed, meaning that the first men were able to pivot quickly to a new front. We can imagine how energised the resurgent first men must have felt, taking back the fingers, a strategic and landing spot, and Gulltown, the Vale's only city, in succession. And when Robar's forces overcame the Andal king, known as the Hammer of the Hills, winning the Eastern Vale in the process, the first men must have felt destined to reclaim their territory and overcome the Andals once and for all. And by all accounts, it was a near thing. Yeah, but staring defeat in the face, the Andals replicated what the First Men had done to solidify their resistance. They put their internal quarrels aside and united behind a strong, emergent leader. They needed someone to match Robar's youth, intelligence, craftiness, and military prowess, a combination they found in a knight named Artis Aaron. Yendel says, The man they chose to lead them was neither king nor prince, nor even lord, but a knight named Sir Artis Aaron. A young man of an age with King Robar, he was esteemed amongst his peers as the finest warrior of his day, a champion with sword and lance and morning star, and a cunning and resourceful leader of men, beloved by all who fought beside him. Though of pure Andal blood, Sir Artis had been born in the Vale in the shadow of the Giant's Lance, where falcons soared amongst the mountain's jagged peaks. On his shield he bore the moon and falcon, whilst a pair of falcon's wings decorated his silver warhelm. The Falcon Knight, men called him, then as now. And so it was that the first men squared off against the Andals in what's known to history as the Battle of the Seven Stars, while each army is said to have been of equal size, the first men arrived at the battleground, situated beneath the towering giant's lance, earlier than the Andals. Seeking to turn their arrival to a substantial advantage, the first men claimed the higher ground and dug trenches behind sharpened wooden stakes to protect themselves from Andal charges and cavalry. And the first men would need those barriers because the Andals boasted a superior number of cavalry at a ratio of ten to one. While the first men held the superior defensive position, the Andals were better equipped as knights with horses, superior weapons, and armor. 
and what followed was one of the most crucial battles in history, although neither side could have grasped its full significance at the time. The Battle of the Seven Stars wouldn't just decide the fate of the region, but the entire future of Westeros. When the Andals finally arrived at the scene, three days after the First Men, it was dusk, and so no battle would be fought until dawn. But even in that darkness, Robar set eyes on his adversary, the Falcon Knight, unmistakable in his winged helm and silvered armour. Given Robar and Artis were both inspiring leaders, both sides knew that the death of one of these men would probably lead to defeat, which is why Robar was marking and targeting his foe early on. So would Artis's distinctive armour be the mistake that led to his downfall? As dawn broke the next day, casting light upon the battleground, the Andals glimpsed an omen in the sky which gave the battle its name, quote, seven stars gleaming in the grey dawn sky. The sign from above greatly encouraged the Andals, and their vanguard began their charge up the hill towards the first men, screaming, the gods are with us. And so the battle was joined. The first six times the Andals attempted to break the lines, they were repelled. Yet they are said to have succeeded on the seventh. It really was a day for sevens, although we should emphasise that the accounts of this battle come from singers who we all know have a strong sense of poetry. Whatever the case may be, the Andals' vanguard did finally break through, led by the towering Torgold Tollet, who wore no armour over his chest in order to proudly display the seven-pointed star carved into his chest. We'd like to think this epic warrior was an ancestor of our favourite dolorous comedian at the wall, but who can say for sure? With an axe in each hand and a smile plastered across his face, Maester Yandel describes how Torgold tore through the Red Fort defensive line, even after local sorceress Ursula Upcliffe rode up on horseback to curse him. Here, Torgold claimed a swift revenge, quote, leaping onto the witch's horse, grasping her face between two bloody hands and tearing her head from her shoulders. By all accounts, here was a warrior to match the current story's gargantuan Gregor Clegane for strength and ferocity. With Torgold breaking through the lines, the Andals poured through the gap to claim the advantage over the First Men. Rather than fighting a losing battle on the back foot, King Robar took fate into his own hands and responded by leading a swift counterattack. With Lady Forlorn in his grasp, he met Torgold, who made the unfortunate mistake of attempting to grab the Valyrian steel blade edge first. Robar swept the blade through Torgold's hands and then sunk it into his skull. Not content with taking down the big man at the head of the opposition's vanguard, Robar quickly pivoted towards his adversary with the fancy armour. The two leaders, quote, came together as the battle raged around them, the king in bronze armor, the hero in silvered steel. Though the Falcon Knight's armor flashed brilliantly in the morning sun, his sword was no lady forlorn, as the Valyrian steel sheared through the winged helm and laid the Andal low. For an instant, as his foe toppled from the saddle, Robar Royce must surely have thought his battle won. However, as his opponent fell, Robar heard the ring of trumpets behind him. Seeing a fresh force of some 500 hidden knights galloping towards him down the giant's lance, he must have realised immediately that he'd been baited into a trap. 
because leading the attack was another knight decked in silvered armour with a winged warhelm. That's right, the Falcon Knight had sent forth a decoy the first time around, and so the distinctive armour had been part of a ruse that was to be the undoing of Robar Royce. While he hadn't been outfought exactly, he had been outsmarted. Artis Aaron was born in the vicinity of the Giant's Lance, and so had in depth invaluable knowledge of the area. He'd taken his best horsemen along a hidden goat track in order to take the first men from the rear. It's not the first time we've heard about hidden goat tracks winning the day. Rob Stark used one to make his way into the Westerlands to take the Westermen at the Golden Tooth unawares, and he was himself taking a page from Daron, the young dragon, who used goat tracks to bypass Dornish watchtowers in the Boneway and so facilitate his brief conquest of Dorne. But, chronologically speaking, Artis Aaron was indeed the first that we know of to use this trick in Westeros. And with Aaron's cavalry now behind them, the first men were caught between the Andal Vanguard and 500 fresh knights on higher ground. Yandel says, The rest was a rout. Attacked from front and rear, the last great host of the first men of the Vale was cut to pieces. Thirty lords had come to fight for Robar Royce that day, not one survived, and though the singers say that the High King slew foes by the score, in the end he too was slain. Whether it was Aaron himself who killed Robar is still debated. The Corbrays claim that their repossession of Lady Forlorn proves that their own Sir Jamie dealt the mortal blow. What we do know is that there were no survivors amongst Robar and his thirty lords. The Battle of the Seven Stars was ultimately the end of significant resistance to Andal dominance in the Vale, where, quote, the Falcon Knight dealt the first men a blow from which they never recovered. The Andal victory also marked the beginning of a long reign for House Arryn, who ruled the Kingdom of the Vale from that day until Aegon Targaryen's invasion saw them reduced to Lords of the Eyrie and Wardens of the East. And it's worth noting that House Aaron claims lineage dating all the way back to Hugor of the Hill in Andalos. While some First Men families did survive, in the usual way of swearing homage, providing hostages and ransoms, and making strategic marriages, it would be many generations before any of them found themselves on equal footing with their conquerors. And as more and more Andals poured into Westeros, some of the lesser-known first men who remained were victimised by their new overlords, defeated and pushed out of their homes. Those refugees in the latter category, who wished to remain in the Vale rather than fleeing west, eventually formed the mountain clans we see in Tyrion Lannister's story, who Yandel describes as savage and brutal and unknown in story as wildlings, much like the free folk beyond the wall. It's fascinating to consider that these clans are descended from proud First Men Vale houses whose fate was sealed the moment King Robar Royce II fell for Artis Aaron's tricks on the battlefield thousands of years prior. And so, with the Vale secured, the Andals had more than just a foothold in Westeros. They now had a passageway into the heart of the continent through the bloody gate at the eastern end of the Vale that led right to the high road and onwards into the Riverlands. But as we'll see, that wasn't the only route open to them. 
The true history of the Riverlands begins with the coming of the Andals. After crossing the narrow sea and sweeping over the Vale, these conquerors from the east moved to make it their own, sailing their longships up the Trident and its three great branches. Remembering that the Andals were noted seafarers and therefore had strength in their ships, they followed their victory in the Vale with attacks on the Riverlands by, quote, sailing their longships up the Trident and its three great branches. Of course, controlling the Trident had implications not just for the Riverlands, but for all of Westeros. Whereas the Vale had been isolated, the Riverlands were, quote, the beating heart of Westeros, with the Trident watering the surrounding fertile lands, encouraging settlement and farming, and allowing for crucial travel and trade, benefiting all corners of the continent. Historically, the Riverlands had always been a fractured territory fought over by many petty kings vying for control. And by all accounts, the Andal chieftains sailing up the Trident took full advantage. These accounts again come from singers summarised by Yandel in this passage. Songs speak to us through the years of the fall of Maidenpool and the death of its boy king, Florian the Brave, fifth of that name, of the Widow's Ford, where three sons of Lord Darry held back the Andal warlord Vorian Viprin and his knights for a day and a night, slaying hundreds before they fell themselves. Of the Great Battle of Bitter River, where the Brackens of Stonehenge and the Blackwoods of Raventree Hall made common cause against the invaders, only to be shattered by the charge of 777 Andal knights and seven septons bearing the seven-pointed star of the faith upon their shields. And while the common thread here is the Andals eventually overcoming their first men foe, we should not forget that the Andals weren't just looking for lands. As we heard in the last part of that quote, the religious fanaticism of the Andal troops was ongoing, with the invaders finding creative ways to endorse the number seven, their holy number, not satisfied with having carved seven-pointed stars into their flesh and painting or embroidering the symbol on every shield and piece of clothing they could find, they reportedly fought in groups of 777 knights with seven septons in attendance. The takeaway here is that while the roots of their extremism lay in their persecution by the Valyrians, the invasion of the Vale had only solidified their zealotry. Also, they really loved the number seven. And this fanaticism made the Andals natural enemies to not only the First Men, but the Children of the Forest, who, as we saw in our First Men episode, had maintained a presence in the Riverlands. Thousands of years before the Andal invasion, the Children had gone to war with the First Men because the latter had begun to destroy the magical weirwoods sacred to the religion of the Old Gods. For a full exploration of the children's culture and the significance of Weirwoods, do check out our recent Children of the Forest episode, but for now we'll summarise by highlighting that their leaders, called Greenseers, were able to tap into recorded memories of any event that had occurred in front of a Weirwood in history. Greenseers could watch their ancestors as well as view through Weirwood eyes in the present and even experience snippets of the future, all of which must have felt extremely threatening to their human adversaries. And just as the Andals recorded invaluable information in books, the sum of the children's knowledge was stored in those trees. 
Therefore, burning a weirwood was to desecrate all of those cherished memories and destroy all of that crucial knowledge. So central were the weirwoods to the children's culture that we learn from Joe Jim Reed that they actually equate the trees to the old gods. The weirwoods are the gods. After generations of bloodthirsty battle, the children and first men had finally forged a peace sealed by an agreement known to history as the Pact. By then, the children's numbers were severely depleted, and they had little choice but to agree to cede vast territory. In return, though, they requested that the first men preserve the remaining sacred weirwoods. The pact was agreed on the Isle of Faces, and what followed was, according to Maester Lewin in A Game of Thrones, 4,000 years of friendship between men and children. In time, the first men even put aside the gods they had brought with them and took up the worship of the secret gods of the wood. The signing of the pact ended the Dawn Age and began the Age of Heroes. But as willing as the first men were to honour the agreement, the pact was shattered when the Andals arrived. Bear in mind that the Andals may have first encountered the children's close cousins in Essos, given that the kingdom of the Ephaquevron was situated on Essos's north coast, east of the Axe. And now, with absolute intolerance of other religions, the Andals in Westeros began killing weirwoods. Just as the first men had done millennia prior, the Andals, quote, fell upon the weirwood grove sacred to the children and first men with steel and fire, destroying the great white trees wherever they found them and hacking out their carved faces. When we think of the old gods, we tend to think of the north. But in those days, the Riverlands was also a place where the ancient religion was embedded into local culture. And so, it's perhaps no surprise that during the Andal invasion, the Riverlands was a key battleground defended by not only the first men, but the remaining children as well. In the earliest account of the children's resistance, Yandel informs us of a night in the White Wood, and yes, notice the not-so-subtle reference to the pale weirwoods there— when, quote, the children of the forest emerged from beneath a hollow hill to send hundreds of wolves against an Andal camp, tearing hundreds of men apart beneath the light of a crescent moon. Of course, the children counted skin changes among their ranks, so here we likely see them skin-changing wolves to attack the Andals, much in the same way that Arya Stark in the current story attacked the brave companions, ripping Igo's arm off while inhabiting her direwolf Nymeria. Such attacks and weaponization of nature itself must have even further radicalized the Andals against gods they already perceived as demons. In speaking of Aya's Riverlands arc, one has to wonder if the hollow hill in the story could perhaps be the same hollow hill she visits with the Brotherhood Without Banners, a hill that is full of weirwood roots and most likely was once hidden below a white wood. Another wooded site in the Riverlands, known to be sacred to the children of the forest, is High Heart, a place we visit twice with Arya in A Storm of Swords while traveling with the Brotherhood. When she first sets eyes on the place, Arya thinks it was a hill so lofty that from atop it she felt as though she could see half the world. Around its brow stood a ring of huge pale stumps, all that remained of a circle of once mighty weirwoods. Arya and Gendry walked around the hill to count them. There were thirty-one, some so wide that she could have used them for a bed. 
High Heart had been sacred to the children of the forest, Tom Sevenstrings told her, and some of their magic lingered here still. No harm can ever come to those as sleep here, the singer said. Arya thought that must be true. The hill was so high and the surrounding land so flat that no enemy could approach unseen. There we meet a curious diminutive woman known as the ghost of High Heart, who with her white skin and red eyes is deeply connected with Weirwoods and the children of the forest, very possibly a child-human hybrid, who dreams prophetic visions that she attributes to the old gods, denoting her as a green dreamer, much like Cranagman Jojen Reed. And as the Brotherhood Without Banners attempt to procure advantageous glimpses of the future from the old woman, she mentions that this place belongs to the old gods still. They linger here as I do, shrunken and feeble but not yet dead. Nor do they love the flames, for the oak recalls the acorn, the acorn dreams the oak, the stump lives in them both. And they remember when the first men came with fire in their fists. But whatever damage the first men did to High Heart was compounded by an Andal king known as Eric the Kinslayer. He and his men surrounded the hill and launched an attack on the children of the forest, their green seers, and the weirwood trees, noted by Yandel to be as ancient as any that had been seen in the Seven Kingdoms, meaning the memories stored within no doubt stretched far back into the Dawn Age, thousands of years before man had ever set foot in Westeros. The children fought back bravely, skin-changing clouds of ravens like Bloodraven did when protecting Samwell and Gilly north of the Wall, as well as inhabiting wolves to attack the Andals. And by their side were the First Men, ironically now defending the grove they had once attempted to fell, understanding the magic and value of the trees as converted worshippers of the old gods. Unfortunately for the defenders, the Andal's steel axes made short work of their resistance, and soon enough, quote, the Andals had slaughtered the Greenseers, the beasts and the first men alike, and raised beside the high heart a hill of corpses half again as high, or so the singers would have us believe. So, 31 weirwood stumps remain at High Heart, and the place where children of the forest once thrived now carries this haunted legacy. The children had barely survived the onslaught of first men, and were short of battle practice given the extended period of peace following the pact. So with these fresh waves of aggression, they must have sadly sensed their doom. But remember that the pact between the children and first men had been signed in the Riverlands on the Isle of Faces where the mysterious and sacred Order of the Green Men guarded the untouched weirwood groves. And according to Riverlander Catelyn Stark, even in the current timeline, they keep their silent watch. Could the Green Men defend what we might consider the last sacred stronghold of the old gods in Westeros? More on that later. As for the first men in the Riverlands, we see a familiar story of spirited resistance finally being worn down. According to Yandel, the greatest of the River Kings to attempt to stem the tide of Andals was Tristopher IV of House Mud. Legend has it that during his rule from the renowned castle at Oldstones, raised on his order, he fought in and won 99 battles. In one, he fended off the advance of Roland Aaron II, King of Mountain and Vale, who had paused construction of the Eyrie in favour of conquest. 
but Roland had bitten off more than he could chew with Christopher, who smashed him in the field, then eventually beheaded him at Oldstones some four years after his failed conquest began. However, just as we saw in the Vale, the Andals banded together right when they needed to, forming an alliance of, surprise, surprise, seven kings to finally defeat and kill Christopher. The mightiest of these Andal chiefs was Armistead Vance, who inspired Ednir Tully, the leader of House Tully, who had fought alongside King Christopher, to switch allegiance to the Andal cause. This must have been seen as a great betrayal amongst the loyal first men in the Riverlands, but for House Tully it was a defining moment as they were rewarded with valuable lands on the Red Fork to establish their home at Riverrun. Converting to the Andal religion and aligning with the conquerors therefore provided the bedrock of their current power as a great house and surely sealed the fate of the Riverlands' waning resistance. In contrast to the Tullys, House Mud's continued opposition to the Andal onslaught proved to be their undoing. In the Storm of Swords, Catelyn reads the epitaph on the elder Christopher's tomb at Old Stones. It read, Here lies Christopher, the fourth of his name, king of the rivers and the hills. She also relayed the story of King Christopher to Rob, as her father had once told it to her. He ruled from the trident to the neck thousands of years ago in the days when the kingdoms of the first men were falling one after the other before the onslaught of the Andals. The hammer of justice, they call him, he fought a hundred battles and won nine and ninety, or so the singers say, and when he raised this castle it was the strongest in Westeros. He died in his hundredth battle when seven Andal kings joined forces against him. The fifth Christopher was not his equal, and soon the kingdom was lost, and then the castle, and last of all, the line. With Christopher V died House Mud, that had ruled the Riverlands for a thousand years before the Andals came. And so, with the Riverlands secured, the Andals had scored a significant strategic victory. Since the Crownlands had not yet been carved out of the southeast, the Riverlands bordered on every region except for Dorne, meaning the floodgates were well and truly open for a full conquest of Westeros. So let's turn next to the Stormlands. Eric VII Durandon was king in the Stormlands when the Andal longships first began to cross the Narrow Sea. History remembers him as Eric the Unready, for he took little note of these invaders, famously declaring that he had no interest in the quarrels of strangers in a land far away. While battles were raging in the Vale between First Men and the invading Andals, as we heard in the quote, the Storm King, Eric VII Durandon, was more concerned with affairs closer to home. If Eric had perceived the Andal threat as one that would one day inevitably wash up on Stormland's shores, he might have thought differently, sent forces north to the Vale, and stopped the Andals in their tracks once and for all. However, the petty kings of the time were too embroiled in their own local rivalries to consider the long view, and so Eric's focus remained squarely on regaining Bassey's hook from infamous pirate Justin Milkai and defending his southern marches from Oliver Ironwood's Dornishman. 
Fortunately for him, but fatefully for his progeny, Eric died before his inaction manifested in the downfall of the first men of the Stormlands. There's an Indian proverb that states, Blessed is he who plants trees under whose shade he will never sit. Well, we can attribute the opposite sentiment to Eric's non-intervention here, as it was his grandson, Carlton II, who was left to defend the family territory later down the timeline. After finally recapturing Massey's hook from Joshua Softspear, last king of House Massey, Carlton met the Andals in the field for the first time. Yeah, Torgon the Terrible, an Andal warlord searching for new territory, pushed south from his petty kingdom north of the Blackwater, made common cause with the Masseys by taking Joshua Massey's daughter as a wife, and eventually installed her brother as local ruler after driving the Stormlanders out of the area. It had taken the Durandans four generations to recapture Massey's hook. Now the Andals had swiftly relieved them of the territory for good. But ceding Massey's hook was the least of Eric's worries, as the Andals had sensed weakness, arriving along his shores in fleets of longships with leaders, kings, and warlords intent on carving out pieces of the Stormlands for themselves. And so began a generations-long war in the region that eventually saw Eric's grandson, Monfred V, attempt to ward off the invaders once and for all. In spite of key victories on the battlefield, the Stormlanders eventually found themselves on the back foot. But then Monfred led his men to a famous triumph at the Battle of Bronzegate against an alliance of, once again, seven Andal kings known as the Holy Brotherhood of the Andals, although the victory cost him his life. If only Monfred's great-great-grandfather, Eric, had heeded the early warnings and aided the First Men of the Vale. Lack of cohesion among the First Men leading to their defeat was quickly becoming a common theme across all regions. However, here in the Stormlands, the First Men were finally realizing their folly. While the Andals offered no respite, with the Andal saying that for every Andal who fell in battle, five more came wading ashore the defenders were forced to consider some unlikely alliances. With Tarth and Estermont taken, the Andals fought between themselves in the Rainwood, offering an opportunity for the First Men to capitalize upon. First, they sought out the children of the forest in the caves and hollows and formed the so-called Weirwood Alliance to score convincing victories at Black Bog, Misty Wood, and Howling Hill. Next, they found common cause with three Dornish kings to win a key battle on the River Slain. By these accounts, we might imagine that the Stormlands were turning the tide of war. However, the Andals continued to arrive on their longships, leading to a sort of stalemate. Neither side were making any real progress, with the Andals continuing their seemingly endless influx, but ultimately failing in their siege of the Durandans at Storm's End that would have signaled victory. And so, following generations of bloody conflict, the two foes found resolution in joining together. King Marlon IV Durandan married an Andor maiden, and their son did the same. The two sides blended as one, and ambitious Andor warlords were satisfied by being granted lands and titles in return for fealty to the Durandans. Eventually, the Stormlands began to convert from the Old Gods to the Faith of the Seven, which was a highly symbolic move given that the Children of the Forest eventually, quote, vanished entirely from the Rainwood and the Stormlands. 
In contrast, the Durandans went from strength to strength, benefiting greatly from the Andal assimilation and maintaining their lofty position as Storm Kings until the Targaryen conquest thousands of years later. But that's a story for another time, as here we're going to continue with the analysis of the Andal invasion and next set our sights on the Westerlands. By the time the Andals came, Lannisport had become the second biggest city in Westeros. Only Old Town was larger and richer, and trading ships from every corner of the world were sailing up the western coasts to call upon the Golden City on the Sunset Sea. Fending off continual onslaught from the reavers of the Iron Isles and having seen the scale of devastation in the Vale and Riverlands, we can understand why the ruling powers in the Westerlands soon sought a bloodless solution for the problem of the Andals. While King Tybalt Lannister successfully fended off three attacks by the foe, the sheer numbers of Andals entering the region brought a sense of inevitability that they would one day establish themselves in the area. However, knowing how marriage pacts led to amicable solutions elsewhere, and perhaps learning from others' mistakes, King Tyrion III and his son Gerald II arranged marriages between the Andal war chiefs and local highborn daughters. And rather shrewdly, in return, the Westermen demanded Andal wards from the families of war chiefs in the same way that Ned Stark took Theon Greyjoy on as a ward in the current story. These cupbearers and squires were kept close to ensure the Andals kept to their word and didn't attempt to overthrow the Lannister rule in the Westerlands. This fragile peace was then solidified when the Lannisters themselves began to take Andals as spouses. And when the Lannister king, Gerald III, died with no male heir, his daughter's Andal husband, Sir Joffrey Lydon took the Lannister name to become the ruler of Casterly Rock, further combining the bloodlines of Andals and First Men. During this time, other blended houses sprouted up, such as the Marbrands and the Lefords, and the kings of the Westerlands formed a realm that found itself ascendant with ever-expanding borders and influence. We do have to wonder if House Lannister's willingness to seek peace and marriage alliances might be rooted in their rumoured descent from a very early Andal adventurer. If Lan the Clever did indeed hail from Andalus, then we may be seeing the exact same formula repeated as when Lan claimed Castley Rock all those generations ago, an outsider managing to marry the sole offspring of the existing lord, who just happened to be female. Sure, the circumstances are very different, since as we know, Lan didn't arrive with armies at his back, but the parallel exists, and no one can deny that in both instances, the Westerlands as a region found itself on the winning side. Yeah, with wealth generated by copious gold deposits in the area and the advantage of having not been ravaged by generations of war with the Andals, the Westerlands was a region that we might argue benefited from the coming of the Andals. Like the Baratheons at Storm's End, Lannister rule also went from strength to strength. And once again, the key to peace was marriage, although we should note that the Andals arriving late to the region also provided a huge advantage. And speaking of late arrivals, another area to benefit from such an advantage were the generous lands of the Reach to the south. 
The Andals came late to the reach, crossing the narrow sea in longships. They landed first upon the shores of the Vale, then later all along the eastern coasts. The fleets of Old Town and the Arbor barred them from the Red Wine Straits and the Sunset Sea. Reports of the bounty of the reach and the wealth and power of Highgarden and its kings undoubtedly reached the ears of many an Andal warlord, but other lands and other kings lay between them. If the Lannister kings of the Westerlands learned from the mistakes of other regions during the Andal invasion, the rulers of the Reach took such caution to another level. There the kings had observed the shortcomings of the Vale, Riverlands, and Stormlands, and, noted by Yandel as being wiser than their counterparts, maneuvered to ensure history did not repeat itself. And the first key lesson the Reach kings must have learned was not to ally with Andal warchiefs in order to gain an advantage over one another. Here at last we're seeing the first men ally with each other from the outset, realising that seeking to undermine one another would be the path to certain doom. Instead, the Reachmen made plans to strengthen and fortify themselves while awaiting what they must have perceived as an inevitable invasion. Reach kings, in turn, sought out the children of the forest in hopes of allying with a species known for their magic, raised walls and extra fortifications around their castles and towns, and built more vessels to improve their navy. However, the war looming on the horizon never arrived. Preoccupied with their battles in other regions, or now making war with each other and no doubt disheartened by the strength of the Reachmen's navy, the Andals made no advances on the Reach. As Yandel said, this was a time of wise rule in the Reach, and three successive rulers of Highgarden, despite differences in leadership styles, maintained a common outlook on the problem of the Andals. Just as the Westermen ultimately favoured assimilation over aggression, so too did King Garth Gardner IX, his son Merle, and his son Gwain V. Within those three generations, the gardeners slid from the old gods to the faith, with Garth first building a sept, Merle converting, and Gwain being born into the faith to eventually be knighted. And while all three took Andals into their service to further facilitate the integration, the son and grandson actually married Andal brides to bind the Andals in first men by blood. Like the Lannisters, the gardeners granted lands and titles in return for fealty, but took the assimilation to another level by employing Andal craftsmen to improve their defenses. This was a shrewd move because not only did it result in the first men gaining an education in metalworking, bringing them technologically up to speed with the Andals, but it made the Andals more invested in defending what were increasingly perceived as shared castles and lands whereas other regions learned, often belatedly, the value of binding by blood and accepting the Andal religion, the Reachmen were now combining their intellect and knowledge with the newcomers. Altogether, the policies of the three Gardner kings were creating a common culture with enough cohesion that it soon became difficult to tell the two peoples apart. Yeah, this is perhaps why Yandel notes that, quote, seldom has a conquest been achieved with less bloodshed. The Reach kings learned from other regions, banded together and anticipated the Andal threat and ultimately accepted the invaders into their ranks and homes instead of going to war. 
it should be no surprise then that the history books, written no doubt with an andal bias, refer to Garth, Merle and Gwain as the three sage kings. And so by now the Andals were fully rooted in Westeros, having landed in the Vale, poured through the Riverlands into the surrounding regions, and settled and married into other regions to create an increasingly amalgamated culture. However, their incursions into the three remaining areas of Westeros, Dorne, the North, and the Iron Isles, were less successful, and all for different reasons. Given we've just been down south in the Reach, let's begin with Dorne. The Andals made their mark on Dorne, as they did on all Westeros south of the Neck, yet most historians agree that their impact was less here than in any of the other southern kingdoms. As we heard in the First Men episode, Dorne was a difficult region to settle and inhabit, and it's notable that the Children of the Forest seem to have written the area off entirely, calling it the Empty Land. While the First Men arrived in Dorne, and many passed through the region, few settled there permanently given there were more generous and greener lands further north. However, some determined and perhaps adventurous First Men saw value in the place and adapted to the sun-baked environs. A sheltered desert oasis here, a green pasture hidden away on a mountaintop there, a bountiful coastline or a shady spot by the flowing green blood, all offered enough sustenance for such families to establish themselves, creating a culture as diverse as the landscape. And it was a similar story with the Andals. Whereas the first men had crossed to dawn by foot, the Andals scouted out the area from their ships, but many reached the same conclusion as their predecessors. The ship captains, quote, were wont to say there was naught to be found there but snakes, scorpions, and sand. And so the vast majority of Andals chose to settle elsewhere in greener pastures more reminiscent of and closer to their old homes in Andalos. Yet again, as with the first men, there were the stubborn few. As Yandel puts it, there are always some who walk the roads that others shun, seeking after fortunes in the bleaker corners of the world. Some of those explorers settled to establish houses that remain to this day, the Ullers, Corgiles, Vates, Jordanes, and Santigars are all resilient Dornish Andal houses. But one Andal house that stands out among the rest is House Martell, who we learn had humble beginnings with an adventurer named Morgan. His landless family initially existed within the territory of houses Wade and Shell, but eventually rose up to take on their lords and, quote, defeated them in battle, seized their villages, burned their castles, and established dominion over a strip of stony coastlands 50 leagues long. But even with these gains, the Martells remained a relatively minor faction, although over the following centuries, their influence began to grow in spite of them bending the knee to the Jordanes, Illyrions, and Ironwoods, and other petty kings at various points. And so it wasn't until the arrival of Queen Nymeria and her Rhoynish refugees many centuries later that the Martells showed the potential to become the major house we recognize them as today. 
Dimeria landed her 10,000 ships close to the spot Sunspear would later be built, married Mors Martell, who offered the fleeing Bruinish a new home far beyond the reach of Valyrian oppression, and then burned her ships to seal the deal. In that moment, Dorne would change forever, but we'll save that story for the next installment in this series. For now, we'll note that the Roinar and the Andals had a long history living side by side in Essos, as we mentioned earlier, with the former even teaching the latter how to work iron, and both having fled to Westeros because of the Valyrian freehold's aggressions and thirst for slave labour to sustain itself. It's an intriguing aspect of Westerosi history that in Dawn, eventually the Roinar and Andals were fated to become one. And now, let's leave the South and focus on a region where initial Andal successes soon dissolved like salty waves, the Iron Islands. The arrival of the Andals in the Seven Kingdoms only hastened the decline of the Iron Islands, for unlike the first men who had gone before, the Andals were fearless seamen, with longships of their own as swift and seaworthy as any that the Ironborn could build. With so much to do on mainland Westeros, the Andals didn't set their sights on the Iron Islands until a very long time, possibly as much as a thousand years after their initial landing in the Vale. But during this time, Yandel tells us the Iron Islands were already experiencing a decline from their Golden Age under legendary leaders like the Grey King, Ironfoot, and Quarred the Cruel. When the Andals finally turned their attentions to the islands, they gave the conquest their all. As experienced seafarers, they soon swept over the isles. Whether the Ironborn have first men origins is still debated, though we can say with certainty that they rejected the old gods to form their own unique culture in the worship of the Drowned God. And it was this uniqueness that ultimately led to them similarly shedding the influence of the Andals and the Faith of the Seven. But their resistance wasn't straightforward. Initially, Andal explorers assessed the islands, and the invasion began with the typical alliances and bloodshed, followed by marriages. Ancient houses were destroyed, such as the legendary Grey Irons, who had provided so many kings of the Isles, and were ultimately routed by an alliance between the Awkwards, Drums, Whores and Greyjoys, and a patchwork host of Andal pirates, mercenaries and warlords. But unlike in other regions, the falling of the leading house didn't lead to an Andal stepping into the vacuum. Instead, House Hall claimed dominion and would continue to exercise their power for centuries. In spite of the fact that many early kings of House Hall took Andals as wives, the local culture and customs proved indomitable in the end. Yandel says, unlike on the mainland, the faith never took root. More, it did not hold firm even among the families of Andal blood. In time, only the Drowned God came to rule over the Iron Islands, with only a few houses remembering the Seven. While the Andal invasion of the Iron Islands began successfully, the independent spirit of the locals and their religion of the Drowned God, which forbade Ironborn to make war upon each other, helped to reject Andal influence in the end. 
the Andals might have left their mark on ironborn history and mingled their blood through marriages, but ultimately the locals would not conform, preserving a culture which to this day sets its denizens apart from those on the mainland. First they decoupled from first men culture and the old gods, then did the same with the Andals and the Seven, and so the Ironborn joined Dawn as a region not unaffected by the coming of the Andals, but which was able to use its existing culture and geography to lessen their long-term impact. And finally, with the rest of the map covered, let's head to the north, which alone among the regions of Westeros was able to withstand the Andal invasion and influence. The men of the north are descendants of the First Men, their blood only slowly mingling with that of the Andals who overwhelmed the kingdoms to the south. Given we spend so much time in A Song of Ice and Fire in the minds of northern characters such as the Starks, we get a close look at a way of life which retains so much of First Men culture. Indeed, when Bran Stark asks his father, Eddard, in the very first chapter why he doesn't employ a headsman like King Robert Baratheon does, Ned replies, Our way is the older way. The blood of the First Men still flows in the veins of the Starks, and we hold to the belief that the man who passes the sentence should swing the sword. And so George is conveying very early on that the Northerners are a little different from the Southerners and that Westeros is no monoculture. But given that we've seen the Andals gaining such a strong foothold elsewhere, why was the North so culturally resistant? Well, as ever, there were a variety of factors at play, including aggression, culture and simple geography. So let's explore the failed Andal invasion of the North. By this time, House Stark had overcome many of its rivals, including their bitter adversaries, the Boltons, which had the benefit of bringing the entire region under the sway of one leader. With the wall to the north creating an impassable barrier and the barely passable swamplands of the Neck guarding their southern border, the Starks really only had to worry about their coastlines. Given the continued threat of the Ironborn to the west, we can imagine that the Starks were well-practiced in coastal defense when the Andals arrived on their eastern shores as they had done elsewhere. But with the North united under Stark rule, the region was less susceptible to local houses joining with the Andals. Instead, the Starks were able to leverage the full strength of the North against the invasion, with King Theon Stark, called the Hungry Wolf, defeating waves of Andals before they could dig in, including a big win at the Battle of Weeping Water against the Andal warlord Argos Sevenstar. And, not content with the victory on his own territory, the Hungry Wolf retaliated. Yandel tells us, quote, He raised his own fleet and crossed the narrow sea to the shores of Andalos, with Argos's corpse lashed to the prow of his flagship. There, it is said, he took a bloody vengeance, burning a score of villages, capturing three tower houses and a fortified sept, and putting hundreds to the sword. The heads of the slain, the Hungry Wolf, claimed his prizes— carrying them back to Westeros and planting them on spikes along his own coasts as a warning to other would-be conquerors. 
So this is an intriguing historic detail with Northmen actually taking the fight to the Andals and brutally slaying many of them on their own lands. This manoeuvre would have come as quite a shock to the Andals remaining in Essos and served as a stark warning, pun intended, for those planning further incursions into the north and perhaps went a long way to stemming that tide. The Andals must have realised that they had easier routes into Westeros beyond the reach of the indomitable Hungry Wolf, who also dealt massive blows to the Ironborn and the Free Folk beyond the Wall. In any discussion about historic defenders of the North, there would be few who could be spoken of in the same breath as Theon Stark. But the coasts weren't the only way into the North, and after victories in the Vale and Riverlands, some Andals attempted to make inroads through the Neck. However, there the resilience and guerrilla warfare of the Cranigmen stopped them in their tracks, and the strategic fortifications of Moat Kaelin provided an impenetrable defense. We saw in the main series that the Neck is a nearly impossible place to conquer from the south, with its bogs, swamps, and inhabitants creating the most inhospitable of environments. When Roose Bolton wanted to return to the north after the Red Wedding, the fortifications first had to be liberated from the Ironborn who held it. His bastard son Ramsay sent Theon Greyjoy as Reek to do his dirty work, who noted the only dry road through the Neck was the causeway, and the towers of Moat Caelan plugged its northern end like a cork in a bottle. The road was narrow, the ruins so positioned that any enemy coming up from the south must pass beneath and between them. To assault any of the three towers, an attacker must expose his back to arrows from the other two. In that case, a determined few were able to hold the passage against an army from the south, and so imagine having all the resource of the region at one's disposal for the defense. The Andal invasion of the north from the south was doomed to fail from the start. As a result, to this day, the north retains its first men culture more than any other region. Local legends such as the Rat Cook refer to killing Andals, and all across the north the old gods are still proudly worshipped, making it culturally distinct from southern Westeros. Of course, there were marriages that mixed Andal blood with that of the first men, but such alliances were rarer up north. And we shouldn't forget that up at the top of the map, the free folk beyond the wall serve as a sort of First Men time capsule with minimal Andal influence. The battles and wars were endless, but eventually all the southern kingdoms fell. It was the north and the north alone that was able to keep the Andals at bay, thanks to the impenetrable swamps of the Neck and the ancient keep of Moat Caelan. Altogether, in spite of those places where their advances stalled or their influence was eventually diluted, the Andal invasion was largely successful. So successful, in fact, that the second mass migration into Westeros changed the continent forever. This marked the beginning of a new status quo in Westeros, as the Andals began to dominate local culture in most places across the map, to the extent that by the current timeline, the Dothraki call Westeros Reish and Ali, 
the land of the Andals, and refer to Jorah Mormont, a Northman to the core, as Jorah the Andal. The invasion came at a high human cost, with countless first men and Andals alike slain on bloody battlefields. But the cost to the native children of the forest was even greater. After barely surviving the waves of first men millennia prior, the two species had forged a long-lasting peace that ensured the children's survival. However, war with the Andals further devastated their population, pushing them to the precipice of extinction. Fortunately, though, the Andals were not completely successful in their onslaught. While they scoured the riverlands, destroying weirwoods as they went, there was one spot they could not conquer. To this day, the Isle of Faces exists as an oasis of the elder culture, apparently forested with weirwoods and guarded by the green men. Given George has promised the green men will come to the fore, we can be assured the Isle of Faces and the children of the forest still have a place in this story. And let's not forget the small number of children that fled north to survive the attacks, descendants of whom Bran Stark meets in a cave beyond the wall. While eradication of the children is a tragic note in this story, it's good to know that there is still some hope for their species. The Andals would argue, of course, that they improved culture and technology that helped to advance and modernise Westeros. Their culture of writing enhanced communication, record-keeping, art and literature, and knowledge-sharing that was invaluable to scholars and healers alike. Their iron and steel working improved crafts, architecture and military might, and their knights brought the culture of chivalry along with the tradition of war waged on horseback. The faith of the seven, when not practiced with excessive zeal, gave hope and spirituality to its followers from monarchs to the masses, shaping the culture and history of the land in ways too many to count. Reading A Song of Ice and Fire, it's difficult to imagine Westeros without the Andals. And if we consider the root cause of the migration, there is essential commentary on history both in-universe and from our own world. While the Andals wrought havoc during their invasion, they themselves were displaced from their homelands by an oppressor. At the heart of the Andal story is the terrible threat of becoming enslaved by the cruel Valyrian freehold. All of the carnage we've discussed today can be traced back to a greedy and bloody regime seeking to subjugate other peoples and capture them into bondage. And we'll be seeing a similar story when we cover Queen Nymeria and her Rhoynar. And the Andal invasion also speaks to another history that we know George loves to explore, that of our own world. The manner of the invasion draws many parallels with the settlement of Britain, with the first men and their animistic religion standing in for the Britons and their Druids, and the arrival of the Andals bearing a strong resemblance to the overwhelming settlements of waves of Germanic invaders, those Angles, Saxons and Jutes we learn about in history class. The parallels with the real world are far too many to address in this context, but in the story of the First Men and the Andals, we get a very clear picture of the real-life happenings that influenced George's fiction. The Andal invasion of Westeros had some unintended consequences as well. 
In the various regions, the ebb and flow of alliances ultimately led to the formation of what would become known as the Seven Kingdoms, which centralization would ultimately aid in the conquest of the entire continent by a mere trio of Valyrian siblings with their dragons. Finally, and speaking of Valyrians, the Andal flight from the threat of Valyrian enslavement may be the deciding factor in the eventual cultural rejection of slavery and thraldom in mainland Westeros. In the next installment of this series, we'll be looking at another group of settlers who fled the Valyrian freehold and ended up on Westerosi shores. The effects of the arrival of Nymeria and the Rhoynar will be much more tightly focused geographically and far less bloody, but are nonetheless significant in the development of Westeros as we know it in the main series. Until then, thanks so much for listening, and now let's close, as we always do, by giving credit where credit is due. Thanks to George R. R. Martin for his incredible world building, and thanks to Kevin McLeod for allowing us to use his music in our production. And as usual, we'll end today with thanks to our patrons from the Castle Steel level. If you enjoy the podcast, consider being a patron, and you could be hearing your name here too. Our heartfelt thanks to a Tory Loon, AJ, Egg on the Sixth, Alex, Ali B, Ali C, Nessie the Questing Beast, Ashanat Yara, Oakenfist, Bran the Builder, Brian, Camille, Casey, Cassandra, Charitable Rereadings, Chris, Christian, Sir Clint the Andal, Sir Duncan Cole, Convenience or Death, Courtney, David, Dimitri B, Dennis, Lady Diana Dane, Esme, Liza, Emily of the Erie, Evan, Ezra, Felix, Gerald Garcia, Sir Gladworth, Sir Gregor the Toasty, Lord of the Breadfort, Ingveld, Isaac, Jim McGeehan, Winter's King, John Aris, Rider of the Ice Dragon, Cenarion, the White Storm, Julie Beth Tarth, Arafinway and Glorian, Judson, Katie, Lady Kelly, Mistress of the Old Bay of Crabs, Kenneth, Tree Girl, Sir Galahu of what? Lena Snow, known as the Twilight Star, Lemba, Lynn, Lomas Knight Rider, Survivor of the Yeen Sleepover, Mage Marmot, Monero Geek TV, Maria, Margareta, and our cohort of Matts, Matt A, Matt C, Matt K, Matt L, Matt M, Matt R, as well as Beatrix Rainfall, Maester Mary, Molly, Nimble Nick One Irick, Patrick, Peter Pebble, Peter, PJ, Paul B, Paul H, King Ray, first of his name, Richard, Sam, Sarah, Sir Swift the Peppered Knight from the House of Black and Grey, Sir Larcelot of B Hill, Sheila, Cern, That Shiny Bastard, The Rat Chef de Cuisine, Terry, Sir Terence, Knight of the Cedars, Valen Valentine, Maiden of the Black Frost, Quarren Halfhand, and Yvonne. As always, let us know if I've pronounced any of your names wrong, if you have a nickname you'd prefer to use, or if you feel we've left anything out. Visit RadioWesteros.com for quick access to all our podcasts. You can also find a link to our Patreon campaign, donate via PayPal or Coffee, and comment on our content there. Or find us on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts. And of course, you can connect with us via Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or email. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you soon with a new episode. Bye for now. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Market.